0: I say this every so often, you're not, you're not supposed to brag about stuff, you know, it's kind of like frowned upon in the Bible, but I have to tell you, I do brag about you guys, I brag about our church all the time, and I talk about things like that, that, um, you know, I was explaining to some of my friends who go to other churches and stuff, which, first of all, I can't figure out why they go to other churches, uh, but um, I, I was explaining, I'm like, what, what we did as a, as a church family, and I got so excited to be able to just sort of explain uh, they're, they're like, what did you, you know, I was kind of saying, well, after, oh, I, well, I kind of set them up. Though. I'm like, what did you guys do after church? Oh, we sit around and drink coffee. Oh, that's weird. You know, we packed 50,000 meals, so it's cool. Whatever you guys do, I'm sure that's, <laughs> that's cool, but we just do stuff. But anyway, I was just telling the story, and you know, I walked out, the great story for me was, not only did I get a free hairnet, which obviously that looked awesome, but secondly, uh, but I, I walk out of church with my wife after the 11 o'clock service, and my oldest son comes up to me, and he's like, you guys, mom, dad, <laughs> we got to start serving right now. I'm like, okay, he's like, let me get a piece of pizza, and then I'm serving. And so I'm like, okay, you got your priorities, great. And then he just disappeared. He had a hood on, and he had the the hairnet on his face. So he just was like ninja pack guy. I mean, it was kind of awesome. But anyway, very, very cool stuff. It's part of the DNA of our church is always thinking about being in the community for the community locally and globally. And so um, it was very fun to be able to do that right after church. I talked to some folks last week who missed it. They're like, hey, we weren't here. What happened? And I'm like, oh, well. God loves us a little more than you because you weren't there, but uh, no, no, it was just, it was very cool to talk about it. So very cool. Also, my hair mentioned the um, vision gatherings. They've been very, very fun. People ask great questions, but um, man, it's been really cool to kind of explain some of the vision for what's happening. It's not just a room remodel as we talk about. It. It's really kind of taking our church to the next step and really looking forward at, at people who aren't yet here in this room. And um, so we're talking about that. That's at one o'clock today if you want to come back for that. Um, and really it's about how can we be all that God has, God has called us to be as a church, so Excited about that. Now, my hair also mentioned we're in a new series. It's called the Pursuit of Happiness. It's a very brief series, um, but it leads us into um, it leads us into Easter as we get closer and closer to that. Um, but it is, you know, the idea of the pursuit of happiness. It's only a three week series, but the pursuit of happiness is kind of built into the fabric of America. It's listed as one of the inalienable rights in the Declaration of Independence. That the other being the other two being life and liberty. But the pursuit of happiness is something we actually kind of feel like this is part of America. And what's interesting about that is at some point or another, that pursuit of happiness doesn't just simply become the pursuit being the right of ours, but the actual happiness becomes kind of an entitlement, a right of ours to have as well. And so really we begin to figure out there's a difference between pursuing and possessing of this kind of stuff. And um, really, I I think as we spend three weeks talking about this, my guess is that the heart of the conversation about the pursuit of happiness is that there's probably something deeper in that search than just simply happiness alone, that maybe there's something Bigger, broader, maybe even something you haven't quite been able to put your finger on that God wants to get your attention about. And so, if you're new with us, um, you know I'm really glad to hear. Obviously, that we um, we have this weird wall in the middle which we're trying to do something about. But also, I want to let you know that this is a group of people who are, um, admittedly, not having it all together. <laughs> by by the sheer fact that we're here, what we're saying is we need each other and we need God to deal with us because we're a work in progress and we need God's help. And if you're along that same road, just going. I don't have it all together, I don't have all the answers, well, you're in good company. So I'm very, very excited to get this this conversation going um, today. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into it. Jesus, we have, um, regardless of the reason why we're here, every single person in this room wants the fullest, the greatest, the most abundant, most fulfilling kind of life we could imagine. Father, there have been moments in our lives we could point to where things have been wonderful and full and rich as we described, and there have been moments we can point to, Jesus, where we are sorely lacking, where we're really in need. Jesus, I know that that across the spectrum of people in this room, there's someone in every one of those kinds of situations. And so, Lord, today as we search for and long for and hope to find and get our hands around some idea of what it means to have this full and rich life, this kind of happiest kind of life, Lord, might you remind us that that first starts with you? And so Jesus, whatever it is that we kind of are already oriented toward, might you bring that to our attention, might we take an inventory of our own soul to ask the question, what really is giving me the life and the fullness that I had hoped? So Father, for just a moment, we just pause. Would you elevate those things in our life that we're searching for, that maybe aren't delivering? Might you make yourself more known to us in a few seconds of silence? Lord, help us to find our way into that something that's deeper and richer than we'd ever imagined. into an intimacy with you. Into a life that maybe, perhaps, is a little less anxious than we came in with. Because of you. So, Father, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well... Um, if you want to check your bulletin in there, there's an outline. If you want to pull that out, we'll, we'll be in Psalm 1 and we'll be in Matthew 5 and 6 as well. And so you want to take a look. If you want to be in your Bible, that's where we'll be. Also, we'll be on the screen. Everything you'll need will be right here. But um, uh, as you're kind of getting that stuff out, first of all, I, have to just, I just have to give you guys absolute credit. Because the power of the daylight savings time switch did not have power over you today. You have announced with a triumphant victory that you will show up to church. Some of you I saw were dragging yourselves in here. I know. I was out there. I saw you guys were making it happen. But I'm just very glad that you made it. It's really critical that you're here. It's going to be a great series. But I just, I just want to affirm you because I know a lot of you went, really? It's not that time yet. When, the, when your alarm clock went off, when you woke up, you're like, that's not true. That's not the time. And you still fought through it. So way to go. You trusted the clock. Okay. When I was a kid, I used to, my my, mom, my first, uh, when I was seven years old. So I'm, I, I have a six-year-old. And I can't imagine doing this. When I was seven years old, my mom put me on a Greyhound bus by myself to go to summer camp for two weeks. Now it's like, wow, she's so cruel. Just people did stuff differently then. And she's a single mom, and she's like, I got work to do, so you got to go to summer camp, you know? So I went to summer camp, and it was awesome. I had a great time. I don't think I changed my underwear once. Uh, I'm just imagining my own six-year-old. So like this summer, if he went to camp, like, man, that would be bad. I mean, I just know, like... And it was up in Mammoth Mountain. It was called it was a clever title for the camp, Mountain Summer Camp. <laughs> it was in the mountains. Uh, and I remember, I remember distinctly, A, not changing my underwear, because I remember getting all my clothes home. I'm going, there's only I don't did you change your clothes at all? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean I don't remember. It was not a factor in my decision making <laughs> for the whole camp. But I remember that it was so dry and I kept wiping my nose and, you know, Kleenex or, or shirt or bark or whatever I was using to try to wipe my nose. And eventually I had a scab right here, which basically gave me like a Hitler mustache. Like, it was like the most humiliating, awful thing you can imagine, you know. It was like, what's that? what's that? Oh my gosh, what's that kid doing? So it was horrible. But one of the things you got to do, you got to shoot 22 rifles, you know. It was kind of this, the guy who ran the camp was an ex-Marine. And so he really wanted people to get out there and shoot rifles. And we went to a range, and, you know, like, the only thing, so, and it was really, it was like, if you did anything wrong, I mean, if you, if you laid down next, if you looked at a gun before he said to, you were, like, in the bus, and just sitting in the bus the rest of the day. It was, like, super strict, of course, which you, you know, all parents appreciated, right? But he's like, all right, you know, you, he had all these commands for us. You can lay, I, it wasn't like lay down, but he was like, you can address the weapon or whatever, and we're like, uh, hi, I'm, Je-. I mean, like, you know, it's sort of, so you lay down, And it's a little bolt-action thing, and you put a little .22, right, you know, little shell in there. And then you you look down this range, and you shoot stuff. Now, the only thing I knew about guns at this point was, you know, when you shoot them, especially in, like, westerns, the dust and the smoke and everything flies up behind wherever you shoot. And that was really cool to me. It made noise, and there was dust and smoke, and I was like, that's what I want to do. So we're all laying down there, and he's explaining how to shoot and how to aim a rifle. And we're laying down, and I'm looking at the target. But all I want to see, the only thing I care about is the dust and smoke behind the target. So he's gone, all right, everybody, you guys, all right, you may fire, you know, whenever you're firing ready. or I don't think he said that. It was like, you may, I don't know what he said, you may shoot your rifle. But anyway, so we're all looking down there, and these guys down to my left, and so I'm on the far right. I remember this distinctly. There's four stations to shoot from, and these guys are all shooting. And I, all I'm looking at is, I'm not even looking at the target. I'm just looking behind the target to watch the smoke fly up, because that's all I cared about. And he starts going through, now I assumed, again, I'm only seven years old, I assumed the smoke flies up, it will probably hit the target. That's probably what will happen. My, my bullet will go right to the middle of the target. And he starts calling, and he starts calling, he sees he's got these like binoculars, and he's like calling out everybody, whatever their names are. Johnson, you got a, you're in the black, you got a seven, you know, and then he starts calling the other guy, you know, Smith, you got a whatever. McGuire, you didn't hit the target. Like, not at all. Not even the white paper around the target. You know, and I was like, how is that possible? I was aiming at the dust. I was aiming at the dirt behind the target. I didn't hit it. And every time, uh, McGuire, you nicked the bottom left corner of the white paper that, that holds the target. Way to go. You know, and so I was like, I'm having a blast. Now, the whole, the whole time as he's telling me that I got nothing, as I'm thinking about what this looks like is maybe I'm aiming at the wrong thing. As he keeps calling out my score, which is a zero for the entire day, he says, I mean, maybe I'm aiming at the wrong thing. I think when we start talking about the pursuit of happiness, I think we talk about, wait, I just skip the thing. Oh, shoot, that's Barack. We'll come back to that in a second. Maybe when we talk about the pursuit of happiness, we might be aiming at the wrong thing. Maybe there's something about what we're doing. We start talking about all of this stuff that, that maybe in some way we're actually aiming at the wrong thing. Thing. So I'm going to jump ahead. Don't pay attention to that. We'll go to that in a second. There we go. What if when we talk about the pursuit of happiness, we're aiming at the wrong thing? In other words, we like the smoke. We like the experience and stuff. And we think to ourselves, I got to get after the pursuit of ha- I got to get after happiness because I know that's what I'm intended to have. But what if we're aiming at the wrong thing? When the Bible talks about happiness, it uses a word, which you just saw. It's a strange word, which people use, you know, like people who use it, it's kind of sound pretentious if they're a church people, you know, they talk about being, you know, this word all the time, we talk about it every so often. And we see it every so often, on the weekend, you see it on, uh, at, at the, uh, when we talk about a at church, we talk about, we don't really know what to do. Maybe this word is deeper and it's simpler than we ever imagined. The word in Hebrew is that one. Some of you saw Barack on your outline, you're like, finally we're going to talk about politics in here, it's about Time. <laughs> I need Jeff to say something about that guy. Well, this is a word that in Hebrew means blessing. (laughs) Argue with the language. You know, whatever you want to do. Okay? It is a word that means blessing. Now, when we talk about it, this is, I'm going to skip two slides again because I put them in the wrong order. My fault. There we go. But as we talk about the word blessing, it's a really strange word because, you know, it's like the word basically essentially means like really super happy you know, it's kind of what it is. The, the word Barak is used like over 300 times in the Hebrew Bible to explain blessing. You know, it's sort of like this expression of being super grateful. Um, you know, in, in, it's also kind of this weird deal because like in Texas where I have family and people who are from Texas, will tell, they'll, they'll agree with me on this. There is this use of the word bless, which is so incredibly offensive. It's really funny. There they go. <laughs> so they know. So, you know, it's like um, good church people in Texas, they look at other people around them, and if, they're, if they know people who they don't like, people they hate, you get permission to say whatever you want about them if you use the word bless. Here's what I mean. You know, I can't stand that guy. Bless his heart. <laughs> well, bless her heart. That person is so ugly, I don't know what happened to them. <laughs> well, just bless her heart. I mean, it's like you get to say whatever you want. That person's kid is so obnoxious, I don't know how they're ever going to get out of childhood. Oh man, bless their heart. I mean, you can, just, you can say whatever you want. They're terrible parents. That guy's an idiot. Whatever you want. That person's ugly. I can't stand that person. I hate everybody. Bless their heart. It doesn't matter. It like wipes the slate clean. We have a different version in Orange County. You've heard it before. Which we banned from our house. It's not quite as sophisticated, nor is it as Jesus-y uh kind of put the the veil of like Jesusness over it but it's basically just this phrase right here which is you say whatever you want about a person same things that person's ugly they're obnoxious they're terrible parents whatever it is and you just cover it with I'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> oh what oh what I'm down my throat I'm just saying they're an, they're a they're a hideous person and nobody likes them I, I'm just saying it <laughs> what's your problem you know like that's the whole now The idea of blessing is not used to sort of cover up whatever else we want to say about someone that's otherwise completely offensive. The first instance of the word bless is actually when God describes, He he fills the the oceans and the land with all these animals and stuff, and he goes, Be fruitful and multiply. He blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply. Then he says that same thing a couple verses later about human beings. Bless. God blesses people. People bless God. People bless each other. God's intention for human beings is that they would live, this is going to blow you away, God's intention for human beings is that they would live in a blessed state. That's supposed to be normal. What's supposed to be normal for human beings is that we live in a state of absolute gratitude, of fullness, and of happiness. That's God's intention for human beings. Now, some of you are going, that's great where did it go i had to wake up an hour early and already i'm feeling like i don't feel blessed some of you have little kids are like my kids didn't care what time it was so in your face all you people who lost an hour of sleep because i you know i'm always in the place of not feeling blessed i have children no I'm just kidding but there's a, there's a part of us that goes that can't be normal blessedness can't be the normal state of things because we know normal normal is pain normal is hard our lives are full of trial and difficulty and we don't have this state of perpetual kind of happiness well i want to take a look at this a little bit i'm going to give us a sense of maybe what this could look like for us and maybe a way that if we could have happiness what actually could undo it too it's the most famous psalm in the bible perhaps it kind of sets up the rest of the whole all of the psalms but here it is this psalm one maybe you've heard this before Blessed is the one who does not walk in step of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or take, uh, or t- sorry, take way the sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Now, let me stop right here. The word blessed here is actually a word, it's a different word for blessed, it's not barak. It's, the word, it's a different word, it means a share. It's a word that means happy one, like happy guy. <laughs> Fully happy person. Happy is the one, this whole thing is one word, who does not walk in step of the wicked or stand in the way or sit in the company. Now, here's the thing, you have to understand The word walk is really critical here. The word walk, you have all these couple different things. You have these sort of different kind of postures in which people are moving towards something. A person who walks, the word walk throughout the Bible is a word that's synonymous with obedience. How people live. So when you see this word walk right here, you have this this sense that what the, the writer here is going, people who walk in obedience, who walk as they ought to, not walk in step with the wicked, who walk differently, Walk is synonymous with behavior. In fact, um, in later in in the um, uh, in in later rabbinical studies, this is sort of first century and beyond, the rabbis divided the entire Hebrew Bible into walking, and then the rest of it being sort of narrative passages. They just referred to it as the halakha, which means the, the walking, the walk, how people obey. Now, then you have this sort of this other phrase you have here, which is standing, which is a posture of learning. And sitting is what you have, which describes the company that you keep. The kind of person that you are. Remember, in this time, people are defined by the people that are around them. And one who sits is defined by the people that are around them. They've chosen a particular company. Now, uh, now then, you have this continuing verse. Verse 2. It says this. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Now, this is kind of a weird phrase because when you think about this is the happiest this person... Whose delight is in the law of the Lord. What we tend to think of when we see the word law. Law is a poor translation because we tend to think of like someone's just sitting around memorizing the legal codes of the Bible, you know. I should have the, the tassel of my, you know, my, my clothes should do this and my beard should be like, memorize it. I mean, all that kind of, st- whatever it is that they're doing. But there's something more here. The word, the word law there is the word Torah, which is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible specifically, but it's more than that. It's actually applied to a general sense of the word. The way the, way the original readers would have heard this is like guidance. Or learning, or sort of embracing this kind of stuff. Now, then it says this that that person who meditates on the law of the Lord is like a tree planted in streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do, prospers. You get the sense that a person who doesn't have these kinds of associations, who avoids some other things, one of the first things you understand is that somehow or another, this blessedness is actually possible. Now, what God tells people that the state of being isn't just a like, hey, it's an illusion. You don't want, you can't have it. But what he says is it's really, there's some kind of connectedness to God, this deep-rooted sense of connected to God and what he's all about and his guidance and his learning and his teaching that gives to us a kind of delight, a wholeness. Now what you also see is this. Happiness isn't something that is directly achieved. In other words, happiness is something that is indirectly achieved. I mean, in other words, it doesn't say if you want to live a blessed life, chase blessedness. If you want happiness, try to get after happiness. What it says is, which is throughout the Bible, happiness is an outcome. It is not the goal. In other words, you cannot just go running after happiness and hope to get it. You can run after the other things that result in it, but it is never, that to chase happiness never results in happiness. Happiness is something always indirectly achieve it's the outcome of something else Um, as I was even looking at this you know yes or last week I was thinking about you know I was thinking about all these all of the all of you guys who stuck around after service to serve you know it's like whatever plans you had you know you decided to give them up and there was something about people and the energy they had and the word the feedback I was getting from people was that this was so fun but somehow or another, if they had chased fun, perhaps they may not have had it, the same, ex- same level of experience, but there's a deeper level of satisfaction by doing something that they had not planned on be- If I just said, hey, we're going to fill plastic bags today, i be like, ah, you know what? I got things to do. But all of a sudden, if it's like a little bit broader than that, we're going we're to feed some people that are without food, and we're going to do it all together, and it will be so much fun to do. There'll be so much There's something then we go, this... That might actually be true. And you saw people coming around and saying stuff like, this is so fun. I want to do more of this. And it's like, well, there will always be a reason to do stuff like this. Because happiness is an outcome. Now around the time of, uh, well, I should say this. The belief among Jews is that, is that God has intended them to walk with him. And that the outcome, the, the walk in obedience with him. And the outcome of their present day suffering at the time of Jesus the reason why they're not in the place of blessedness with God, why God isn't rescuing them, was that their present suffering was because these people were poorly walking with God. In other words, their sort of walking obedience had kind of lost its way. And what you have, Jesus begins a conversation with some religious folks who say, what we've got to do to get God to rescue us, which there's a biblical precedent, which isn't t- completely crazy at the time, for them to go, for God to rescue us, to do what he's supposed to do, we've got to get our act together. And everybody's going to have to start stepping up their walking ability. In other words, being more obedient. And you're going to have to do it great so that God will look at us and go, look at my people. They're obedient. They're doing their, they're doing their part. Have you guys ever seen those Olympic power walkers? It's a, that's a real flattering sport, isn't it? You know, if you said that you went to the Olympics, you know, people are like, oh my gosh, what would you do? It's a power walker. Oh, is that like a different kind of Olympics? Or is it like the real Olympics? No, it was the real Olympics. I really actually, I do it. So you kind of, you're that person who swishes their hips for, you know, 50,000 meters or whatever it is. No, yes, that's, that's me. Yeah, I know. I know. I don't really, I don't do a lot of news stories on the heroic person who's a power walker. But I, I actually was, while I was, look, this, I was, I was listening to this, I was checking some stuff out about this, I was sort of cracking up about it. First of all, you know, they walk these, these a marathon, they, they walk a marathon, and it, so I did how many steps are in a mile? It's, it's roughly 10,000 steps. I mean, these people are walking 262,000 steps. And that's a lot of steps, right? I mean, they have so many steps to take. Now, one of the things that's interesting is as these people walk these bazillions of steps, they act, they're, they're just, if you take one step in which both feet are not in contact with the ground, I mean, if one foot's not in contact with the ground the whole time, like if you take a little jog, a skip, you trip or whatever it is, you're disqualified. Like you're doing your, hip swish walk move for all those in the last lap you know and they come into the olympic stadium which is empty of people because nobody cares about power walking <laughs> unless they thought there was some other event oh man they're power walking. i'm getting a snack i mean but they you know they come into the stadium they do one lap one 400 meter lap around the stadium for all the adoring fans which there aren't any they do one more lap to finish out their race and there's all these judges watching their feet if they take a half-skip in a hustle to try and pass someone you know with their hip going whatever a million miles per hour and they try to if they take a step they're disqualified in the last 400 meters oh man I'm sorry you're done oh gosh you know like walking over you know trying to you just imagine at that point they jog <laughs> off like ha, I'm jogging whatever but you know you're done now in so many ways, these people known as the Pharisees, their effort, well, good intention, ended up being, making themselves to be sort of the officials of a power walking race. Looking at obedience, you're going, oh, you skipped, you're out. Hey, we, oh, I saw that, you both feet were on the ground, one foot was on the ground the whole time. <laughs> you're out. Sit down. Go wave to your fan. I mean, you know, whatever it is, go sit down. The critique about Jesus by these people generally is this. Jesus, you are too soft on all these things because we know if we're in obedience, God will rescue us and then we'll have this kind of blessed life, but we don't have it now because our normal right now is one in which we're under the pressure, the oppression of the Romans. And they're comment about Jesus to how he keeps hanging out with people who don't walk the right way, how they're not kind of getting it together fast enough. Their comment to Jesus is, you're soft on these things. And we're going to need you to step it up, Jesus, because you can't be the guy God has promised us because you're so soft on these people, to which Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, these words, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. This is the Hebrew Bible he's talking about. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from this law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of, these least of, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and preaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven a lot. Other versions, I mean, other, other gospel accounts use the word kingdom of God. You might have heard that book of Mark. You know, John does this, Luke as well. But the kingdom of heaven is describing God's rule and reign on the earth and forever. And what Jesus is saying is, there's all this law, which you guys are so intent on enforcing, and you keep telling me I'm soft on it, but I'm saying, I want all of it. And all of it matters. It's all good. Whoa. And then he says, there's a debate among the teachers at the time, about what are light commandments and what are heavy commandments. Meaning, you know, like, you can't mess with a bird's nest and you can't kill someone. And they're like, well, mess with a bird's nest. That's kind of like not that big a deal. But killing someone, that's a big deal. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no they're all the same so he's pretty excited about this stuff and then he says the scariest thing he says this in verse 20 for i tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven now he's talking to a group of people who don't just include these pharisees and like the religious leaders he's talking to a bunch of peasants On a hill. Like they're all out on the hillside. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And he's talking to these folks about here's what it looks like to participate in this kingdom kind of life. And then he says this. If you had to ask these people who has the most perfect walk, they would say the Pharisees. There would be no debate about it. The Pharisees have the best walk. And he says, hey everybody, normal people, peasants who are working just day in and day out, hoping for their next meal. Unless you're more righteous than the Pharisees. You don't get to participate in this kingdom of heaven stuff. And they're like, well, good talk. We're out. I mean, like, they're, this is an unbelievably high bar. Now, Jesus will spend the next few chapters, really the remainder of his sermon, talking about how it's bigger than just merely the outward experience. Because what he says to these people, this is essentially the moment when, like, the car tires screech and the record scratches, when he says, you've got to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And the public now, their, their attention is like, What are you going to say next? But Jesus will spend the next sort of, next few chapters in the Bible, if you want to read it in the book of Matthew, explaining something. That he's not simply after the outward appearance of doing things that are right. What Jesus continues to come back to throughout his ministry is this. It's not just that you look like you're doing everything right, then you'll be blessed. It's that your whole life is somehow transformed. That unwhole people are what we would call disintegrated people. People that are broken apart. That means they have a part of their life that lives, that's lived publicly, and a part of their life that's lived privately. Anybody relate to that? Because what he's saying is, you Pharisees are advocating a fully fake life. Over and over again, he calls them fakers. He uses a different word, describe a play actor. It's the word we know as hypocrites. And he keeps calling these guys and saying, you keep telling people to do stuff that you're not willing to do. You love the outward appearance, but you miss the inner stuff. And you guys have missed something so beautiful. And you created for people a way that they live which makes them disintegrated and unwhole. And Jesus is pointing throughout his entire ministry to this one fact, the outrageous liberty of being a whole person. The outrageous liberty of being a whole person, in this room, we are a group of people who feel the pressure to be different to those who would see us than those who wouldn't, that we, we have this sense about how we live in our own home and how we are when we're driving our car, which may be entirely different than our public persona, and it weighs on us. Some of us leave interactions with people, whether it's other moms or it's other students or it's other folks that we work with and we wonder, I wonder what they're thinking about me now because I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm terrified that they don't think I, I mean, we just live this terror of going, I have to live differently with them than I want to with myself. I get, Jesus is going, wait, 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 don't just try to fake it. Don't just try to put, put on an air of everything's looking as it's supposed to look. No, 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 what I want you to do is to be a whole person. And he's saying if you keep making it all about these other things, you're going to miss the greatest stuff of life. that God's, one, the, the picture of what it means to be a participant in God's kingdom isn't that you just behave better. But that you're the kind of person who, without having to fake it, lives the kind of life that's participant in the kingdom. In other words, you don't have to be two different people. People are always under pressure when they come to church. They'll be two different people. Especially when they talk to me. I try to do whatever I can to make people feel like they can talk to me however they are. But people will come to me and they're already, when they see me and they talk to me, if I catch their attention, see them at the door, they, they, if they say something, they're just stricken with guilt for something I have no idea what they did. Oh, hey. Hi, how's it going? Why you got to say it like that? No, I, don't, I mean, no, I don't say it like that. I'm just kidding. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I, it, there's just an overwhelming sense that people have that I know something I don't know. And we have this pressure that says I have to look so different. And what Jesus is advocating is... What would it look like to live a life of wholeness? That's where we start getting closer to this picture of what it means to live a life that is truly blessed. I want to talk to you about something that I think robs us, particularly us, of that wholeness. Next week, Doug Fields will talk more about another thing that kind of robs us of our wholeness, but I want to talk to you about something that's pretty critical, that if we could get a handle on it, our lives would look massively different. So here's what Jesus says in the next chapter Matthew 6. He says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body. <laughs> Anybody ever worry about their body? Summer's coming up, we're all like, oh, I kind of worry about my body. Uh, what will you, what, what you will wear? Anybody worry about what you wear? Is it not life more than food and the body and then more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can, can one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? worry. We love our worry, you guys. We do. It follows us wherever we go. If there's moments in our life where we feel like we're without worry, it almost feels like it's awkward. Like if you have a moment where you're like, you know, I'm just not worried about something right now. You kind of start finding something to worry about. You're on vacation. If you've got kids, you're on vacation. You're like, oh, it's just great. So great. We're on vacation. Everything. We turned our phones off. Everybody's, it's cool. We're just out by the pool. And oh my gosh, one of my kids might drown. Oh my God. And then all of a sudden, you're just in this place where it's like, now you're not really. Even if they're great swimmers, you're like, what happens? Now we're a faraway place. What happens if they get kidnapped? And oh my gosh, now I got to worry. And what are they doing? And always take someone with you. Go with your sister. I don't want to go with my sister. Why not? She's going to the bathroom. That's fine. Stand outside the door and you just wait and you talk to her every five seconds. Are you there? Are you, there? you just make sure. There is something about us that always worries. If our phone is off and we can't be bothered, we start going, but what if someone from work calls? And I won't know. And then I'll be fired. And then this whole well we've needed the money from this vacation, we can't afford it now because I just got fired. And where's my phone? And we start figuring out how to get back. We just worry all that it finds us. It tends to find us no matter what. I actually think in some ways we have kind of an addiction to it. Because we feel so awkward not worrying about something. Not, we feel like we're not responsible if we're not worrying about something. In fact, I would say if you're if you're not worried for long periods of time, you're stoned. So <laughs> you know. The only person who says they're not worried is someone who's so detached from reality, you know. And I'm not worried about anything, man. What do you guys worry about? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just hanging out. <laughs> it's like <psh. laughs> lost my place. Oh. <laughs> I'm not stoned. <laughs> Verse twenty eight. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? Do they not labor or spin? Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. By the way, this is an, this is an analogy we probably get a little terrified by. This is basically just saying when people are harvesting, when, when they're trying to bake their own food... They have to take the dry grass and put it in an oven to bake their food. It's not a, like a punishment sort of thing. Not just like, you know, what they're dressed and they get burned in the fire. No, it's not just, it just means they don't have a long lifespan is all that means. Uh, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or drink? Or what shall we, or what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, or the Gentiles. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. There is an intention here that, that I want to kind of take an angle on this that is a little bit more contextualized for us. The audience of Jesus' ministry here is, like I said, predominantly peasants, all different kinds of people, but you have a large bulk of his audience being people who are day laborers, who are planning on, they, they, can't, they, don't, they don't have 401Ks, they're not watching the stock market, they're not investing in real estate. These are people who simply go, i got to make it to the next day. Please let me make the next day. I just need even more, so I just need to live through today. People got paid by the day; they didn't get paid by the week. Every two weeks, they got paid every single day, and whatever they could bring home, they were able to provide, provide for their family, and that's it. Now, for us, I'm going to take this a little different tack. I think for us, when we start talking about worry, we have a particular kind of preoccupation with ourselves. Our particular worry—I'm going to get after this a little bit, so i might get a little uncomfortable. Our for us in South Orange County. Where we all, where this is our home, what we know, what we experience, there's a particular kind of worry that I want us to consider. Vanity. Vanity. If you look at what's happening in the passage and you lift just a little bit and go, what does that look like for us? You see there's this preoccupation with stuff. There's a preoccupation with self. I I was trying to figure out a good definition for vanity. I didn't like the ones that I found, like, literally in the, the Bible, so I had to make a math equation. It's this. Vanity equals worry to the power of ego. Think about it for a second. Now it's sinking in. In other words, whatever it is that we're worried, like what we somehow managed, we have plenty of worry already, but it's somehow geometrically increased when we put it to the power of our ego. Some of you are correcting my math. Lighten up, okay? I'm not very good at it. But there's something about us that our worry gets amplified in an unbelievably fast rate when it's about us, when it begins to be, when it's not just an unselfish thing, but underneath all of everything that we're doing. She says the Bible is not anti-planning, it's not anti, you know, wisdom, but underneath what we're doing, what we're kind of sort of for a lot of us, we start talking about this idea of happiness in particular. We start looking at God, going, "I'll make you a deal, God. If I do a few things, you'll give me happiness, right?" Because that's it's really the focal point of the kingdom and all of everything is to make me happy. Everything you came to do is for my own happiness. Isn't that right? And so we kind of go, God, I need you to do some things. That there's a little quid pro quo, I need some happiness, so you've got to give it t- to me. Or another way to sort of think about it is that we start thinking about happiness is the way in which we start looking at our own lives, our own, or at least in terms of, as it refers to vanity. We start thinking about how, it, like it's the one thing it's the vanities that one thing we start going, well, there's a little bit of compromise I can make. There's a lot of determining factors that help us make decisions, but the, but the way in which we access our, our own happiness is by going, well, the things that God may want from me or the decisions I have to make or the honesty or the purity of whatever my life is, you know, all of those things we start going, well, 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 but I know God would want me to be happy. And that's where we start entering into this conversation about vanity. Now, if we start thinking about those people, we're all like this. Think about people that have all those things that we really want. They got the vacation that you want to go on. They have the kids that are better behaved than your kids. They have more hair. They're, they're not worried about the like, upcoming summer season, and they're going to be fine with their you know, bathing suit, whatever. They're, all of that. They're all fine with that stuff. But those things and all those resources they have, which we go, I want what they have and I should have it because that will make me happy. We're actually robbing ourselves of the fullness of what God wants. Because remember, happiness is indirectly achieved. And those people who have those things, it's not, if they're happy, it's not because of those things. Jesus then says this, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Which is a great line. People have thrown that in my face when I've been worrying before. They got punched. Uh... <laughs> Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. There's enough worry for tomorrow already. Don't worry about that. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Remember that, the, that happiness, this fullness, this full kind of life is, an, is, a, is a, it's the indirect result of aiming at God. Remember that when we saw, even in Psalm 1, someone who's, like they're described as a tree, who's next to this river, who's rooted down deep, that person prospers. It isn't us who chase for our own happiness where we find happiness. When we chase our own happiness, we end up kind of pursuing our own vanity, and it always ends ends up leaving us empty, always we go down that road all the time, all of us do. Everyone in this room goes, I just, if I could shave a little bit of what my integrity, my wholeness, to get a little bit of vanity, well, then I'll be happier. Or we wind up empty. You know, I think we have to ask a pretty important question. What are we aiming at? In all of what your life looks like, whatever it is, whether it's in business, whether it's in friendships, or it's in dating and relationships, whether it's in marriage or raising kids or whatever else it is, what are we aiming at? What are we aiming at? And there's so many influences in our life that have shaped that. The answer to that question, so many things. I told you guys a a couple weeks ago. I said, you know, as we were kind of talking about the wall if you're with us we put some stuff on the wall things that have been in barricades for us things in our own way I talked about for me that one of the things that's always been in my way is I always wonder if I'm lovable enough. and I realized this not after I did that after I'd done that the the outcome of this I placed it on the wall and kind of identified it for myself I realized one of the things that that has shaped my aim and I'm aiming at things, even as I parent my own kids, I'm watching my oldest son, I'm realizing he's different than me, and I'm realizing I'm terrified for him, and I'm parenting him badly that he might have a, have successes I didn't have, not because I need him to have it, but because I'm afraid he won't be loved. Whoa. I'm, I'm aiming at something broken in my own life. I'm trying to parent him so that I can deal with my own wounds. Maybe you connect to that idea. Maybe there's compromises we make in our own lives. Maybe there's decisions we decided are okay for us but are not okay for other people. What are you aiming at? Is it vanity? Is it success? Is it the pursuit of your own happiness? Is it influence? Is it achievement? Is it some kind of pleasure? Is it some kind of permission you want to give yourself? What are you aiming at? And if it's not, if it's not at God, then there's something about your own life that's going to be not correctly aimed. and You're going to be shooting at the dust behind the target and wondering why you didn't hit it one of the remedy for vanity so first is we got to ask ourselves where we're looking at and we got to aim ourselves right at God and the second one is this the the one of these most famous blessings in the Bible is that God gives one gives one gives one God gives to Abraham it says this Genesis 12 I will make you a great na- into a great nation and I will bless you this is if you've ever sang the song if you grew up in the church Father Abraham had many sons many sons father, father, Abraham. father Abraham you can't just say father Abraham you have to say father Abraham because that's the song now, all of what we, the, the, the history of the people of Israel and ourselves, because we are this branch out of the people of Israel, out of, this is us, all of them go back to this one guy named Abraham who gets this blessing. And God tells him, you're going to have a number of sons and daughters. And you will be the father of many nations. He gets his name changed from Abram to Abraham, which means father of many. Now, then you get this. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. In other words, a, bet, a better way to say this perhaps is like this. There is a blessing for people that God has given to Abraham. It's his intention. But the antidote to vanity, which I wrote in your outline, which I almost, almost regret writing. The vanidote. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but the way, <laughs> some of you are laughing, some of you are not. But the way in which, the way in which the remedy for our vanity is simply to say, and it's the most shocking thing for people like us who are vain, who want to be better than we are, who want everybody to think we're awesome, who serve we all. This is all us in this room. The remedy for that is to say, I have been blessed, and I will be a blessing. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. In other words, the blessing that comes to Abraham does not stop with Abraham. It is continued on. You have received great blessing. If you constantly ask, how come there's not more of it? You cannot be a blessing to other people. And you're stuck in vanity. And you're chasing happiness instead of chasing something else. Last week it was so fun to watch people serving together. You know, we use this phrase, church people use this phrase all the time. It's a little bit obnoxious, but it's the phrase I'm blessed to be a blessing. But there's another axiom that kind of comes out of that, which is I'm blessed by being a blessing. Not just that I'm blessed for the purposes of blessing other people, but that that by blessing other people, I also receive more blessing. Ask anybody who gave up their lunch last week to kind of come here and eat our pizza, our cold pizza, and, you know, coffee and donuts. It's a wonderful combination. To serve with us. They're like, yeah, I took a Tums afterwards. But other than that, it was awesome. Something happened to me because I got to be a part of it. There is some soul molding that happens a little more picture of wholeness that comes together when we say it's not going to be about me in a moment we're going to respond we're going to you know going to get an opportunity for those of you who need prayer maybe there's some brokenness in you that still need some prayer we'd love to be able to pray with you. Our prayer team will be up here in a second our band's going to sing and what we're going to do in singing and not quietly but boldly we're going to rightly aim our hearts that we might know what it's like only for a moment, to participate in a life of blessing that we'd aim our hearts at God. So let's pray together, and then we'll do that. Jesus, we are grateful. We have been blessed. And while it's easy to find reasons or things for which we have, we are lacking, and there are many real needs in the room, Father. I don't want to minimize those. Might we find the truth, too, that you have already blessed us, that you gave to us a life we could never have without you? that you're calling us to a life of wholeness, that it's outrageously freeing. Father, might we rightly aim our hearts that we're not consistently overwhelmed, that we're not consistently burdened by ourselves. Might we aim at you that we might have the outcome of fullness, of richness, of satisfaction, of blessedness, of happiness. Make us whole as we orient our hearts toward you, as we aim at you. Hear our voice, Jesus, as we sing. Amen.